The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So welcome everyone to the fall Buddhist studies class, eight-week class. Anybody here uh, to their first Buddhist studies class? A couple folks. Yeah, welcome. It'd be nice to meet some of you at some point. So maybe tonight will be a little bit busier, but if you uh, haven't introduced yourself to me before, maybe at the end of a program, sometime during the course, just come up so I can meet folks. And what's really important, if you haven't been in a Buddhist studies class in the last couple of years, that you print your email on the sign-in sheet. It'd be nice for everybody to sign in, just so I know who's in the class, but don't put your email down if you've been a regular Buddhist studies person or if you've been in the Buddhist studies sometime in the last couple of years because you're already in the Google group. But if you haven't been in the Buddhist studies, then I need you to print your email neatly so I can get you in the Buddhist studies Google group. That way we can communicate with each other. Um, and I did send an email out, but some of you got that email today because you signed up for the class, but that doesn't mean you're in the Google group. So you still need to print your email if you haven't been in Buddhist studies before. So in this class, uh, more than the other programs here at the center, we sort of become more formally students of the Buddhist teachings. And he was a real master at mapping out the mind. It's really amazing that somebody 2,600 years ago in a different, obviously different time, different culture, that was able, this person was able to articulate what he saw in his mind in a way through all these generations, through translation, through all those cultural differences, and the map is still very useful to us. So that, what that tells me at least is that the depth at which he was understanding his mind was sort of deep enough that it transcends time, culture, translation. I mean, it's, that doesn't mean those things don't affect or make it hard in some ways to understand what the Buddha was pointing to, but you'll see, if you're new to this, that these maps really come alive. But it really depends on us doing the work, and that's really what the Buddhist studies program is about, and it's really how the Buddha suggested we practice, which is that we find the teachings, we listen, you know, respectfully, we take it in, we memorize, and then we bring it up when our mind is in a contemplative space, a quiet time. We bring up the teachings, like in our morning sit, for example. And then it's like, of course, the teachings are all conceptual, right? So it's a conceptual map, but then we use it to frame or to illuminate our present moment experience, and we see now, directly in our own experience, whether it's a useful map. Does it help illuminate the reality of the present moment? Do we see things more clearly when we, or at least do we see things we wouldn't otherwise see? Do we learn? Do we start having insight about how this all is unfolding, how it all works? And in particular, how suffering arises and how suffering ceases, how stress arises, how skillfulness arises, how unskillfulness ceases, right? Because that's what we care about. That's what we all care about. That's really the only thing that's important, 
how is it that I end up as a suffering being? How is it I can end up as a wise, compassionate, liberated being, free of an oppressed heart? I'm interested in that. So we're, in this uh, eight-week class, we're specifically looking at the Buddhist teachings about sensuality. And he talks about it in, t- in three ways. That sensuality, this being in the sensual world, there is a very real gratification that arises. Right? When we eat something we like to eat, or we crawl in a bed we want to crawl into, you know, there's a very real pleasure. We call that gratification or allure or satisfaction, worldly satisfaction. And we really need to know this, and I'll talk about this tonight and and next week. And then the sort of middle third of the class will look at the second thing the Buddha said we should wake up to in terms of sensuality, which is the limitations of sensuality or the drawbacks of sensuality or the danger. This word gets translated in different ways as danger, as drawbacks, as limitation. Now this isn't a surprise for us. Those of you who have fallen in love a number of times, know the very real gratification of falling in love and the drawbacks that go with falling in love. Or anybody who's gotten a new device, a new object, whether it's a ceramic bowl or an iPhone or a car, or you know, you know there is gratification and there's a, there's a limitation to that object. Its capacity to delight and lead to lasting happiness is limited. Have you found something in your life, some object of experience or some possession that wasn't limited in its ability to deliver lasting happiness? And then the third thing, this is what we'll do the last few nights of the course, is the Buddha talks about the escape. Not so much the escape from the world, although this is sort of an interesting debate in among the different Buddhist traditions, you know, just briefly, like between the bodhisattva idea where you purposefully, evidently, keep coming back as a way to take care of all beings versus sort of this ideal of being an arhat where you step outside of the wheel of samsara. But mostly, my sense of these things are they're just stories, and uh, and either way, what's of value is the not clinging. That's what's interesting, the not clinging. And uh, if we're really, if the heart's really not clinging, not oppressed by its existential situation as a sensitive being in a sens- in a sensual world, then. Yeah, I kind of like the idea of being a bodhisattva and keep coming back, whatever that would mean, you know? Because it's not a problem being here. Because the heart, by definition, isn't confused (coughs) by sensuality. So this is the escape. And like I mentioned, it's, it's both nuanced, but it's also controversial. But we'll talk about, like, what is, what, kind of freedom might the Buddha and other wise beings be pointing to? 
what is freedom as a sensual or as a being, uh, somebody, something that has, a, has sensitivity, right? This mind-body, the one thing we can say about it is it's sensitive. So as a sensitive being in a sensual world, what is escape from torment, escape from being tormented by sensuality or confused by sensuality? What does that look like? What would that look like? This is the escape. So this is sort of the the way the class will unfold over the next eight weeks. I want to just cover some of the nuts and bolts for the new folks and as a reminder to the uh, other people who have been part of the Buddhist studies in the past. So there is a criteria for doing the class. We want people who are who have a committed a commitment to practicing and just formal meditation, but also formal meditation combined with study. So we're using the concepts that we're learning to inform our sitting practice, our awareness practice. So the criteria is you have a commitment to daily practice. Now, I know not everybody's going to be sitting every day, but there should be a commitment to daily practice, to practicing every day. And then the other is that you've done three meditation retreats. They can be half-day retreats, they can be three-month retreats, but that you've taken your interest far enough that you've showed up to some retreats. And I've even compromised people who seem to have a real interest and haven't completed those criteria but are going to do it in the months coming up, then that's okay too. And you could just check in with me if you have any questions about that. So just so you know, we have an open sit from 7 to 7.25. Please don't interrupt that sit. If you're here a few minutes after 7, sure, come on in. But if it's 5 after 7, then just sit in the lobby or in the community room or outside if it's warm. And then come in at 7.25. Well, I'll ring the bell at 7.25. And then if you're in the lobby, then that means you can come in at that point. So either arrive for the 7.30 start or get here at 7 o'clock for the optional sitting time. And we'll be sitting also at 7.30. We'll do the chant that we did tonight, and then we usually sit until 8 o'clock. But that second sit from 7.30 to 8 will have a guidance related to the theme we're studying um, every week. It's good, especially the second every other week, so the second week, the fourth week, the sixth week, and the eighth week, when we have small groups. We'll save the last half an hour. We'll break into small groups. It's really good on those weeks especially to wear a name tag. And you'll notice that there are permanent name tags, and you can have a permanent name tag. I noticed that we're well equipped. So instead of constantly using the ones, it's amazing how many we have to order of those ones you take and throw away. Take a piece of stiffer paper, print your name in a neat way, slide it into a plastic sleeve, and then under the bulletin board on the second shelf, little plastic bins organized alphabetically, and leave it there. So when you come to Buddhist studies, why not do it every week? Put your name tag on. Because one of the things that really helps our practice is being embedded in a friendly and wise community. So, which leads me to say, like tonight, if you're an old timer, then look for somebody you don't know at the end. And I'll try to remember to remind you. And just like make it a point to introduce yourself to somebody who looks new and maybe introduce them to another old-timer, if that makes sense, if it's convenient. And it doesn't have to be, you know, artificial, elaborate. Just connect. 
just find a way to connect and to make everybody feel welcomed being here. And you'll see it actually supports your practice because when you don't want to come, you're more likely to come when you feel connected to the community and you feel this mutuality, which brings me to the next point, which is Buddhist studies is different than like the weekly practice groups, which are designed on purpose to be drop-in. You don't have to come every Wednesday night or Sunday morning or Sunday night. Just wanted to make it easy for people to come when they can come. But Buddhist studies is different. If you have family obligations or business obligations or you're sick, then absolutely it's okay not to come. But if you can come, you have to come. So if you sign up for the class, it means that if you can be here, you come. That we're like looking around the room right now, we're saying, yeah, we're committed. Now, we could all just say that together. Okay, ready? Count of three. And you're going to say like, yeah, I'm committed. Okay, one, two, three. I'm committed. (laughs) I forgot the yeah part, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) It makes a difference for everybody if we're committed to being here and committed to doing some of the study. Some of you are going to do a lot of study. Some of you are going to do a little study. But digest, do something to digest or integrate the teachings, even if it's just sort of reflecting Or why not connect with one of those people you don't know and go have a meal before the Monday night class or go have a cup of tea if you're a late bird after the class or meet on another night and talk about the stuff because that might work better for you than in the solitude of your home unpacking the resources and doing the readings or whatever. So find a way to make it work. And you could feel free to connect with me. I can maybe suggest folks that you know, live in your area or might work to connect with. But mostly you just have to take some chances to build community and to make the class really work for you in that way. And then if somebody's asking you to connect and you don't have time, it's really okay to say that to them because there's nothing worse than somebody saying, yeah, when they don't mean yeah. So it's re- I'm giving you all permission and you can give each other permission to say, no, no, you know, I'd love to connect, but it just doesn't make sense in my life. Or I'm already part of some groups where I work with Dharma. You know? So you might have to ask a couple people. And maybe next week I'll even, uh, I'll find a way to uh, collect some names of people who are looking for small groups and to sort of give you a chance to connect after a program next week, probably at the end of next week. Um, if somebody has a pen... Write that down and give me a note at the end so I don't forget. I didn't bring a pen in with me. Um, So I remember to do that. Good, and a couple other quick things just in terms of nuts and bolts. So I sent an email out with some study materials. I'll send another email out having put everyone who printed their email in the email group. So if you don't get an email from me sometime tomorrow, it means I don't have your email address in the Google group. So that means tomorrow night, send me, or Wednesday, send me an email saying, I didn't get an email. And my email is mark at org. Okay, so just mark at and then our website. And it will get to me. Mark with a K. Any nuts and bolts? So uh, Steve is going to be recording. So those 
talks and guided meditations will be up on our website, both the Buddhist Studies webpage, which I'll send a link out tomorrow in the email, and also just on our normal audio page. So you can, if you miss a class because of business or sickness or something, you can listen. Thanks so much, Steve, for doing that. And Bob, did you have a question or comment? <laughs> I mean, how long have you ha- do you have to be around to be an old timer? <laughs> You're an old timer, Bob. <laughs> In so many ways, <laughs> all the good ways. <laughs> Any other nuts and bolts? Great. So we'll move on. Sensuality. (coughs) Any comments about the meditation tonight? Because this can be a useful place to begin your formal meditation practice at home is just to see your the mind's integration with the body as a little microcosm of your whole life of sensuality. And if you think it does, it's not representative of your whole world of sensuality, it might be just the lack of imagination, lack of interest, lack of intimacy, as opposed to... Because, you know, it always seems, this is like the grass is greener phenomenon, it always seems that the central world is more delightful, like over there where my refrigerator is, or you know, where the internet is, or my friends are, or this exciting or dangerous part of my life. But really, it's all here too. Excitement, danger, joy, delight, heavy, oppressive, sticky stuff. It's all right here in the reality of the body. But we have very uh, strong habits of sort of being unaware of the body. So we often uh, engage sensuality where it feels alive, like we haven't developed ways of shutting down. But eventually we will. And then we need a new avenue to feel enlivened by sensuality. Because everything gets old. So instead of constantly having to sort of get our sensuality fix from new central experience, it might be that we can return to the old ones, whatever it might be, you know, eating oatmeal tomorrow morning. I mean, this is the great thing about retreat. We might have for many years given up on oatmeal, and then there we are in retreat getting oatmeal, and it's like really amazing as a central experience. Same thing, you know, you know, walking in the woods doesn't do it. We need to be at 14,000 feet on top of a peak in Colorado or the high Sierras before it matters, you know, being out, outside. You know, it's just Matthews Park or it's just the Mississippi River Gorge. I mean, it's so easy to be dismissive about our experience, and we basically get ourselves in these boxes. So I would really explore in your formal sitting practice 
you know, with the experience of hearing and the experience of seeing and the experience of touch, smell and taste to a lesser degree. Um, but see if you can bring a fresh attitude to it. So I don't want to talk too much about it, but if somebody had some experience in your sit that you'd like to share with the group, your sit tonight, share with the group, just some relationship moments of relating to the body that seemed, you know, useful, a learning experience and insight. It'd be nice to hear anything. Well, I noticed um, when my mind, when I wasn't distracted, like you just simply put it, when you're aware, I, I would get in where I just felt the body and it was wild how much was going on. And it also like that phrase that you had the buzz of life. It was it wasn't like it wasn't thoughts. It was just I mean I got when I would get out of thoughts, the body was so sensitive. Yeah, and, and it, I, it was and quite a delight. Yeah, and I, I think your word wild is a for some people will be a really useful word word, like to notice, because it 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 um, reminds us of this quality this sense of humility and not knowing because when we feel we know the body it's because it's been framed by uh, an idea concept and then that body that's framed defined by an idea can seem to be very boring because the idea is static but the reality of the body is not static at all yeah thanks maggie so So I just have a question to understand sensuality as you're... I keep hearing it in a positive sense. In other words, that it's, you know, this feel-good, what is it, you know, that you're sensing that, you know, giving you the buzz or whatever. Can it... Isn't sensuality also just being your mind connected to your body in whatever it's... I mean, like, you know, what if I'm having, you know, feeling my stomach issues or what I'm feeling, mm-hmm. you know, things that might not be seem so pleasant, but I'm still connecting with them. Yeah. Is that not part of sensuality? or It's absolutely part of sensuality. Yeah. yeah. But being intimate with sensuality is what it is, you know. And there's something about uh, dropping the disconnection abandoning the disconnection and the defense and the close the habits of closing down and shutting off yeah i think i'll leave it there though yeah and we'll talk more about pain but what we're really interested at in the course is the view the mind has around sensuality like illuminating the the different views the different way the mind uh believes the role that sensuality plays. What is its purpose? In fact, this is a nice transition for me. Maybe shut the mic off now just so that we save the battery for later. But uh, I've been asking this question a while, for a couple months now in different settings here at the center, and so you might have heard me ask it, but I think it's just a good question, and you can revisit this just in your own practice in daily life. And it's, it's the question, well, why, you know, this mind seems somehow tethered, tied to the body, connected to the body, and the mind, the knowing mind, the sensitive mind, the exposed mind, exposed to sensuality, 
we're exposed, vulnerable, open, sensitive to the world that we inhabit of seeing, the world of seeing, the world of hearing, tasting, smelling, touching. So what is the purpose of this world that we're sensitive to? Like, Is the world of sensation, the world of touch, the world of sight and sound and thought and smell and taste, when we ask that question, like, what do we do with it? Why is it here? What's the appropriate way to relate to sensuality? The Buddha calls this the all. This is an interesting little sutta. It's actually Sabha Sutta, the all, A-L-L. Practitioners, I will teach you the all. (laughs) Listen and pay close attention. I will speak. As you say, venerable sir, the monks and nuns responded. The Buddha said, what is the all? Simply the eye and the forms that the eye sees. Ear and the sounds the ear hears. Nose and the smells the nose smells. Tongue and the flavors the tongue tastes. Body and the tactile sensations, the body senses. Intellect and the ideas that are known. This practitioner's is called the all. Anyone who would say, repudiating this all, I will describe another, if questioned on what exactly might be the grounds for this statement, would be unable to explain, and furthermore, would be put to grief. Why? Because it lies beyond their range. It's like they don't know what they're talking about. There is nothing beyond these six things. Sights being seen, sounds being heard, touches being touched, smells being smelled, tastes being tasted, and thoughts being thought. So this is the world. And most of the thoughts are thoughts about sensuality. right? So most of our mental activity... I'm thinking about a touch. I'm thinking about a smell, a taste, a sight, a sound, right? So there's thoughts about sensuality, and then there are the five sensitivity to the five physical senses. So this is the world of sensuality. And then in terms of this study, this eight-week study of what is the mind, the, the appropriate understanding, the appropriate relationship, how should the mind be relating to this reality of sensuality, the sensitivity of these six things? How should we relate? Is it something, it's like a, you know, we hear this sometimes like it's a playground. It's, It's a gift to us from maybe some divine force or whatever, Playground, or maybe it's this moral playground to sort of see what we're made out of, whether we're a good person or a bad person, whether we do bad things in the world of sensuality or we do good things. So it's sort of like a karmic testing ground to see what you do with the sensuality. Or is it here to, it's like here to punish us? Because sometimes that's what we think. It's like the mosquitoes, as a sensual experience, they're here. You know, we did something wrong and they're here to torment us. Or 
our illness can feel like, you know, somebody's out to get us. This is my punishment. But in Buddhism, we have, we don't, we, we try to recognize all of those answers as coming out of a particular view, of a self-centered framing of the question. And like, so what would be an answer to that question outside of that self-centered frame? So the world isn't here, like, it, it doesn't make sense, like, why is it here for me? The world is just the world. Sights are just sights. They arise conditionally due to causes and conditions. Sounds are just sounds, and sensations are just sensations, and thoughts are just thoughts, and smells and tastes are just that. And any time the mind comes up with a purpose or frames it in terms of me, why is it, you know, it's here to punish me or it's here for me to delight in, to bring happiness for me. Then it's like, it's where we, you know how we do that a lot where we personify things. It's like we, we see our cat doing something and we tell ourselves our story, or he loves me. You know, the way he puts his head up against me, he loves me. And it might be that he just wants, to, he likes having his scent on you, you know, so that it's like his marking his territory. It has nothing, you know. But we're happy with, we're, we prefer the stories that we tell ourselves about all kinds of things. And we can tell very negative stories and sometimes really positive. Yeah, a question about this, Louis? Okay. Um, I'm thinking about it from uh, the viewpoint of what's called an artist. And the senses are how we experience the world, how we experience the environment. And as an artist... um, what I try and do, uh, I'm observing the world through my senses, and I want, I want people to feel connected uh, to themselves and to their environment, and to have this sense of, you know, because the words might be beautiful or or the words might serve as a channel so that you can feel the trees or the wind or another person, and it, and it breaks down the sense of isolation, like I'm not just this bag of flesh, I'm this entity that's connected to everything else. And I think we have a lot of times an instinctual kind of fear about reaching out and touching or allowing something in. But art is one of the ways where we can get a sense of our inner connection to everything. Yeah. And the interesting question is that experience of unity, let's or interconnection, non-separation, it, what's really important in terms of this class is for us to have a deeper sense of what that experience is and what are the causes for that. Because you might think, 
that 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 experience arises because of the uniqueness of the central experience. Like because like I was just teaching a seven day retreat out in Washington State, and we were under these big cedars, really majestic, awe-inspiring place. Really loved it. And it, it felt relatively easy to be intimate and feel fed and part of being there. But it's, it's an important study right there in that moment in my heart and my mind to really understand that experience of feeling fed and feeling whole and feeling unified in those moments, is it because of the trees or is it because of something that the mind dropped? And when the mind understands that it's because something the mind dropped, then it realizes it's not dependent on being around big trees or a beautiful breeze. That whatever that that thing you're talking about, that art can do for us, because I, I totally agree with what you said, Lewis. Art and, uh, and basically wisdom and love can do for us. Anything that uh, directs the mind outside of what the mundane, basically sort of the worldly attitudes, gross attitudes that are just fear-based, greed-based, anger anger based but what what we're exploring in the eight week class is what's the proximate cause is it the sense experience itself the blueness of the sky the roar of the surf or is it the mind just to put it in sort of simple terms the mind dropping self view because the, the basic problem is we keep thinking the, that we're, the mind is dependent on special sense experience in order to have meaningful experience, meaningful insight or freedom. Right? And what we're just, as a practitioner following you know, the lead of the Buddhist teachings, he wants us to really understand what are the actual causes for freedom. Because otherwise we keep chasing something. And it might actually at times seem like it's delivering something. But we might be always misinterpreting why that was such a useful, insightful experience. We might say, oh, it's because I was around that person. But it might be that when we were around that person, the mind shifted. So it was the shift in the mind, not the person, not the trees, not the ocean side. What was the actual proximate cause for that freedom that the heart realized or that space of unity that the heart realized or the absence of separation that the heart realized? What actually was the cause for that? And that's really what this is about because what seems to be the case, and we can really check this out this week, is that what causes a lot of suffering is thinking that we need special circumstances in order to be happy. We keep postponing happiness, insight, 
you know, moments of real authentic joy, moments of authentic release, until we think that the conditions are right for it, as opposed to wondering, maybe it doesn't, maybe it's not a function of conditions. Maybe it's a, more of a function of the mind's understanding of what sensuality, what conditions are. And that's really the point the Buddha was making, that it's, because otherwise, it's like this is what propels artists and every other being to be neurotic, because we think we need particular conditions to get back to whatever intuition we have of freedom, that it's based, it arises out of particular conditions. Yeah, Anne. Um, in the Zen Sutra, uh, they always chant something like, no eyes, no ears, no taste, no tongue, like all the senses know. And I was having a conversation with uh, Judith Biakran, and uh, she she talked about something that's above the sense. Well, she didn't use above. She said it wasn't in a location, but a particular kind of silence or a void or something that is uh, a different place. And I don't think I've been in it, or I don't really reference it. And it's kind of hard to me to imagine it. But what's do have you been in a place like that? And do you think that there's I do get confused by this, like uh, Pudadamo said something about it, like if, if you're aware of s- taste or smell or anything like that, even if it's a primal awareness, that somehow that's not samadhi or that's not the ultimate in, what, transcending the senses. So anyway, can you say? Well, a couple of things related to what you said. The mind in quiet places, the mind retreats from the sense doors, right? So the attention, the knowing mind, can turn its attention to the mind itself. So like, for example, when the mind settles and it's feeling an inner quiet, an inner peace, then the knowing mind can let that be the object of meditation. So now the knowing mind is knowing how, knowing the experience of peace and then as that the concentration the singleness of attention on that inner peace quiet stillness as that uh, uh, one-pointedness or attentiveness to that inner stillness develops then that mind is not paying attention to the sense gates so it doesn't mean there isn't sound it's just not paying attention to sound doesn't mean the ears aren't working. It just means that mind is not paying attention to the sound that's being heard or the sight that's being seen or the sensations that are being felt or smells or tastes that are arising, right? So that mind, if that, if that concentration, that meditation develops, that mind experiences the world of mind only, let's call it, right? Because it's not attending, it's not paying attention to the sense gates. So that mind gets a flavor of what non-attachment to the world of sensuality is like, but it's arising because it's secluded itself from it. So once it's back in the sensual world of seeing and hearing and touching and smelling and tasting and its thoughts about those things, then any habits it has to grasp, to be angry, 
to manipulate, whatever, be controlling, those habits will re-arise because they existed latently in the mind. They didn't get uprooted. So that's like in jhana, in the deep states of absorption, then the mind experiences a world that is, in a sense, temporarily outside of the central world. It's really withdrawn from it. And then what, but we're practicing mostly in this uh, world of sensuality, even in our sitting, most of us, most of the time. We're aware of sensation, we're aware of sound, we're aware of sight, and we're purifying understanding. We're not purifying the mind, removing the mind from sense experience on purpose. Wisdom is developed when Buddha's knowing Dhamma the way it is. So we need the movement of sensuality to transform how the mind relates to it from taking it personally, thinking the world of sensuality is here to deliver something, to realizing that the purpose, like if you want, this is a funny way of saying it, but the purpose of sensuality is to learn how to let go of it or to learn how not to be attached. Because that's what leads to you know, getting ahead of ourselves. Now we're talking about the escape and, but that's what leads to freedom is being intimate with sensuality but not grasping. That's what makes a walk in the woods meaningful. It isn't the fall colors. It isn't the dappled light coming, sunlight coming through the leaves or the breeze rustling, that wonderful sound or the pitter-patter of the four-legged creatures running around or whatever, the smell of the pine needles rotting on the floor of the woods, it's the pleasantness of all of that or the interest, the mind's interest in all of that, it, the mind abandons its neurotic activity. And the mind realizes a way of being in intimate in the world of sensuality without needing to do anything about it. And then the mind intuits something, oh, this is the way to let nature be nature. This is nature, like we practice tonight, you know, just being aware of the body, the thinking mind as nature. And when that nature can walk through the woods or take a swim in the ocean or get a hug from a friend or have a nice meal, when the nature of the body and the mind can interact with the nature of spaghetti or the nature of a walk in the woods or a swim or a hot bath or a hug or any of these other flavors of sensuality, and it's just nature then that means there's no problem, right? But when there's a, an additional activity of this part of the mind, the thinking mind, that's creating a story of a somebody who wants something from sensuality, like wants to hold on to this nice experience, or wants to tweak it just a little bit, you know, it's just a little bit more salt in the spaghetti, it'd be better, you know, or some Parmesan cheese on that, or... You know, then their suffering is born. Then there's a problem. Somebody has a problem. And that fragments, that disturbs nature being nature. Right? And that can happen at any time. And that's really this work that we're doing together is sort of getting a sense of what sensuality can deliver. What are the drawbacks? The drawbacks you'll see when we talk about this more in the middle of the course you'll see that the drawbacks have to do with the meaning-making, the meaning the mind makes out of sensuality. That's the problem with sensuality. 
Sensuality doesn't actually have a problem in and of itself. Cold weather, hot weather is fundamentally not a problem. I mean, this is provocative to say these things because global warming is not a problem. What do you mean it's not a problem? You know, or you know, any of the other places that sort of in the dance of sensuality where real suffering is arising and to say, well, that's just nature being nature. You know, we see a bobcat hunting down a rabbit. Is that a problem or not? Well, it depends on our perspective, doesn't it? Millions of human beings not being able to grow crops because of global warming. Is that a problem or not? You know, or industrial farming and agriculture and the way we treat the chickens and the you know, other beasts that we eat. Is that a problem or not? So it's, it, this, uh, this is really, this study of sensuality is really provocative. But we're really looking at it on the, from the point of view of what is the skillful way for the mind to show up to the world of sensuality? What really frees the heart up to be a wise and compassionate being, to participate in the world of sensuality without suffering? Now, a lot of times you think, well, the way would be just to get the heck out of it. But being a sensual being, being a sensitive being in a world of sensuality and not wanting to be here, that's suffering. Or thinking that it's dangerous, only dangerous. So that's why the Buddha teaches three things. There is gratification, there is danger, drawbacks, and there is escape. And we want our understanding to include all three of these, where we really see the real gratification. Maybe I'll just take the last 10 minutes and I think, oh, I did send this out in the email today. So you have a copy of this. And it's uh, just some of some quotes from the Buddhist teachings and some uh, comments from Ajahn Tanisaro, one of our great Western translators and teachers and a really valuable resource for our Buddhist studies because he puts all his uh, Dharma reflections and teachings online for us to be able to share freely. Uh, and he's uh, the abbot of a monastery outside of San Diego, an American who trained in Thailand as a monk for many years and now has been out here in the West teaching as a monk for many years. And abbot of a nice monastery where you can go practice if you have reasons to get out to San Diego at Wat Metta. Wat just means Buddhist monastery in Thai. And so he's in the Thai tradition. And Metta just means kindness. So that's the name of the monastery. But anyway, this little pamphlet or this booklet on Dhamma, which is the Buddhist teachings. Um, the Buddha talked about his path as a gradual teaching. He didn't teach the drawbacks of sensuality as the first thing. You know, People would show up at the monastery and say, hey, let me tell you about the drawbacks of sensuality. First of all, no one would show up if that's what he did. But also, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be clear. So what he first did is he kind of sensed, oh, as a worldly person, as a human being identified with the world of sensuality, you want to be happy, right? And you think that the way to be happy is to push somebody aside and take what you want, right? Or to do whatever you have to do to get rid of what's painful for you. But actually, 
that even on this very mundane, self-centered level, that doesn't lead to happiness. That leads to strife. So he said he would teach people who, like us, just want to be happy. Listen, I just want a comfortable existence. And that's where, just to be honest, right? Isn't that where we are most of the time? I'm not interested in understanding deeply. I just want to be comfortable. Maybe after being comfortable long enough, I might be interested in some deeper reflection on what the heck's going on here. But right now, I just want my comfort. I want some safety, you know, and I want some distance from the messiness and injustice and craziness of the world. I just want to put it aside. I want a funny movie. I want a warm drink or a drink that relaxes me <laughs> or whatever, you know, you go for in your life. You know, maybe some chocolate or something sweet, something salty then, then some more sweet. <laughs> so what the Buddha would say, well, if that's what you want, I really studied the mind and I've studied causality in amazing detail. And I, and I really, I know what will lead to this very mundane level of happiness. It's not going to be immediate, but in the long run, you will get everything on the central level you could possibly want. That's what the Buddha says. Like, they describe it in, you know, in a cosmological um, way as heaven. Like, and they're very graphic, like, Every delight you can imagine would be yours for the taking, you know. Eons of having the body of a teenager, beautiful. Every pleasure, sense pleasure would be available. Right? Or even if you want something even more refined, like you don't, you don't want good sex or good food, you want something, then you can be reborn into a realm where you don't even have, even have to deal with a, a body of light. You would be formless. It would be just pure love. And that realm would last even longer. The incalculable number of eons, you'd be there. So mythologically, they talk about this in these very amazing ways. And so what's the secret for that? Cultivating generosity and cultivating non-harming. So you can try that. Like if you really want wealth and good sex and beautiful sense experience... So just cultivate, like put all of your energy into learning how to be more and more generous and more and more refined attention to non-harming. And this like fits into one of the things that we in the center have been, uh, in our community have been interested in the last number of years is like beginning to unpack uh, our cultural conditioning around like injustices around... um, our relationship to animals, our relationship to racial injustice, economic injustice, patriarchy, gender issues, and how the uh, how these the ways of suffering just keep perpetuating themselves because we're not paying attention. And so it seems like really hard work, messy work, difficult work. But what the Buddha says is, this work leads to happiness. Cultivating non-harming in all of these ways isn't a pain in the butt. It's a direct freeway to happiness. 
Same with generosity, learning how to respond to every impulse to give. We act on it. We do something about it in a way that makes sense in our life. Same with taking care of ourselves. We're generous to ourselves and we're also generous to others. So we're not neglecting anybody in that, that radiance of generosity. And you just see what sets emotion in your life, whether the Buddha was right or he just was full of it, didn't know what he was talking about. Did he, was he able with his clear mind to actually unpack, like in terms of causality, what leads to happiness? And now this is a little tricky because we don't have, most of us I'm guessing, maybe none of us, have direct evidence about rebirth and future lives. And traditionally in the, in the system, you know, you can't necessarily expect that as you cultivate a more generous heart, a more kind heart that's keenly sensitive to how the mind might be participating in causes for harm and um, uprooting those tendencies, becoming cause part of the causes for non-harming, for kindness, you know, it may take some time for those causes to manifest as wonderful things happening. But the way I like to think of it, because it doesn't really make sense that like, let's say there's a future life, that that's going to be me, because it's not even me now. But some being, some sensitive being, that is somehow the continuation of this, is going to be experiencing the fruits. You see, this is like the height or the perfection of altruism. Like we're setting in motion happiness. And does it really matter who receives it by cultivating generosity and non-harming? So the gradual path the Buddha taught, it begins with like, well, what would an ordinary mundane human being want? Well, they want comfort. They want safety. They want pleasant experience. Okay, do this. So this is our study for the first couple of weeks. We really want to understand the reality of gratification and not be ashamed of gratification. Just really study when you experience some kind of gratification, however ordinary it is. You put your sweater on and you feel a little better. You take your sweater off because it's hot and it feels a little better. You know? All the little ways. And then, and then really get interested. That's something. It's not, I mean, it may be limited, but it's something, and I'm going to let it in. Because you know what the third step is? So the first step is cultivating generosity. This is the basic path, the gradual path the Buddha taught. Then sila, this ethical conduct or this commitment to non-harming. And what is the third? And you have this, remember, this document. And the third training is described as heaven. It's like learning you can't go further where you begin to study the drawbacks of sensuality until you get really good at experiencing heaven. Which means if you don't really let the reality of gratification touch your heart, so the next time you get a hug, maybe even tonight some of you will get an authentic hug from your cat or your partner or somebody you live with, you know, are you letting it in? The sort of actual feeling of being held, being that simple physical affection. Because as social beings, we kind of like that. So are we letting that in? 
And if you don't have anybody, just ask somebody on your way out. <laughs> there might highest pretty good. <laughs> or whatever, you know, some people don't like to get hugged, but because there's no there's no authentic interest in the reality or in the uh teachings of drawbacks which leads to the heart that knows or figures out how to let go until we've let in the reality of gratification, what the sense world has to offer. Now remember, it's not just eating ice cream. Sense world is all of this. Community, wholesome community, all the joys and sorrows and pains and pleasures that we experience. We have to really let it in, the beauty of it in. Because then we realize what it is and we realize what it isn't. And then we're interested in not rejecting it. It's not about rejecting the sense world. It's about continuing the refinement of happiness. Oh yeah, this is happiness. Wouldn't we be interested, willing to let go of a limited happiness if there were a more profound, refined happiness. Sure, we do that all the time. There were a lot of things that made us happy as teenagers that we've let go of. Now we're into something else, you know? Like for me as a child, as an eight-year-old, it was like white bread with a lot of peanut butter and a lot of jam dipped in hot chocolate. Because <laughs> it was hard to chew and swallow because you, know, you needed some lubricant. And hot chocolate was just the ticket and that was thing, you know, that, that was happening. Now, I never do that anymore. <laughs> I've gone beyond it. Now I have green tea, you know, I have other, more refined <laughs> sense pleasures. And I'm hoping there are even more refined sense pleasures to, you know, what would I indulge in now? But our time is up. We'll pick it up when we come back. Look for the email tomorrow. If you don't get it, let me go. Let's just take a few seconds to let go of the words. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.